Well, let's kick it off. First of all, how's it going, Jan? <laughs> uh, pretty good. Pretty, pretty hectic right right now. Yeah. Uh, doing a lot of stuff for for family. That's great. Me and my dad are kind of like the demolition duo right now. <laughs> now, I didn't even know. Are you that handy? Are you the guy who can go in and like build someone's kitchen? I had no idea. Uh, I could probably do it. The only thing I'd one of I'd struggle with electrical work. I think you'd probably see like a major like spiky hair if I did it. <laughs> I'm so ter- I'm terrible about all that stuff. I, although I can demolish things pretty easily, I think I could go in and do that part. But if you need me to rebuild, I'm not that guy. I'm so terrible. so one of the things there's a there's a show here 
on the on the TV, and and my my family watches it all the time. I hardly ever watch TV. My oh. family watches this show all the time though, and it's people that go to places like France and Spain, and they go in and they buy property they they want to renovate, and they showed this one where they bought some French chateau, mm. and they took it from basically run down and convert and renovated it converted it and i'd be totally up for something like that yeah i do most i do most of the stuff myself i'd be yeah. happy to all that kind of stuff nice and yeah i'm no good at for that an, for anything that i couldn't do i have family contact well i would not be anybody's pick in this situation i i'm terrible at it just terrible but um yeah, it's uh, good. Well, things are normal over here. Uh, without getting into too much detail, we've got some uh, work drama going on at the, at the moment. And um, I'm just somebody who, if work is stressing me out, then I am a wreck. And so, unfortunately, the the podcast has even been a little bit kind of in the back of my mind as opposed to the forefront, just because I have a hard time when work is rough, basically. But we won't get into the details of that. So I got we got a list here of things we're going to talk about for the recap episode. One thing I wanted to say is that, first of all, I, I think I probably tipped my hand a, a little too much last time we did one of these where I was talking about how frustrating it can be sometimes not being, you know, anyone's first choice when it comes to a music podcast. And I heard from so many people who were so complimentary of us and what we do and what we're trying to do here. And I just wanted to say thank you to everybody for all of your kind words. And I mean, truthfully, I think you and I would continue to do this even if we had no listeners, just because it's fun and exciting for us. But I am grateful that anyone pays any attention to what we do. And so I wanna say thank you to all of you for sticking with us and listening and thinking that what we do is special if you do, hopefully you do. But, so I wanna tell this story. Now after, it was kind of cathartic for me to put that out there after the last time. And so afterwards, I sort of was like, you know what? I'm not going to worry about this anymore. I'm not going to feel this way. And especially if we get, as we get kind of bigger and better guests, which I, I feel like I have to always say, that is not the point of this podcast is to get bigger and better guests. But if we can get some once in a while, that's great. Um, because those aren't always the stories I'm trying to tell. But the bigger the guests, the less likely they are to even let their fans know that this is out there because they don't, you know, there's a million of those things. So I shouldn't take it personally if, you know, we have guests that don't share our episodes with their fans. So I was feeling really good. And that was a Friday. And on Monday, maybe you guys remember that I had mentioned a couple of things recently. I really enjoyed the Stephen Thomas Earl Wine episode we did last year. I loved having him as a guest, and I've heard from a lot of you that you loved it too. He, to my knowledge, never shared our uh, episode, even though he said he would. And I pinged him about it after the afterwards. I even said something snarky on on Facebook, like, you know, did we not pass the share test? Crickets, nothing, no response. And then I pinged him, I don't know, a few weeks later about a music question, and he replied right away. So it's clear he picks and chooses what he wants to talk about. And uh, around the same time, I also was trying to get Stephen Hyden, the music critic, to come on the show. And I think I told you guys, he replied saying, after initially saying on Twitter he would do it, and then not replying to any of my emails to set it up, he finally came back to me a few months ago and said, you know, I've been getting all your emails, 
I'm really busy. If and when I can do this, I will let you know, which to me felt like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. The Monday after we put out that episode, me kind of finally sort of purging myself of this, of how I feel about these things. Stephen Thomas Erlewine goes on Stephen Hyden's podcast to talk about Ween. And of course, Stephen Thomas Erlewine is super excited to share that episode. Hey guys, I got to go on this great episode or on this great podcast with my good friend Stephen Hyden to talk about, about a band I really love. Did we get that kind of treatment? No. Um, but Stephen Hyden got that kind of treatment. So anyway, it, I was reminded just a few days later of that same kind of cool kids table at lunch and uh, our spot on that hierarchy, but whatever. I, I, I'm over it. I'm tired of worrying about it. Now, um, I want to talk about the guest recap episodes that we brought up a couple of times on here. I'm conflicted about it. We had one guy, Andy Shaw. Uh, commit to doing one with us in a couple of months. <clears throat> we had a few other people call, uh, write in asking about specifics. What are the details? What's it going to be? You know, what all do we get for the money? That kind of thing. And uh, but no commitment. So I don't know. Maybe you guys don't care after all. I hear from a lot of people that say I would love to be on your show, but then, understandably, I guess if you put a price tag on that, they're less enthusiastic about it. And I probably misread the situation. But then again, at the same time, I would hate to just have it open to everybody. And if we get such a huge response that it makes sense to eventually charge and to charge those people and not the first people, I don't know. I'm still really conflicted about this. What's your what's your feeling, Yan? I know we've, we've discussed it before in other, other podcasts. Do charge for stuff. I'm still hesitant to want to, to charge people. But I know you have to spend the time recording this you have you have stuff that you pay for to record this mm -hmm. i have tools that i bought to be able to produce it i suppose uh, you know if, if we can come up with something that's a price that's yeah people feel comfortable with and isn't too bad then yeah that's fine yeah maybe that's it i don't know i i'm really i'm struggling with what to do here on this i can't i can't decide so anyway you may get some kind of an update from from us at some point with new rules or maybe we stick to our guns and people just, the more they hear these recap episodes, they want to be a part of them. I'm not exactly sure. We'll figure it out. I want to tell you, I met a couple of our previous guests recently. I got, one of them was the great Steve Kilby from the church. So let me tell you what happened here. This is kind of funny. So you guys may remember when, when he and I did that interview, he had mentioned that he and Amanda Kramer, who was, the woman that was in the Information Society and saying, you know, pure energy, if you remember her. She's also been, uh, she plays keyboards with the Psychedelic Furs. She's been in Susie and the Banshees. She's been in World Party. She's been in a ton of, ton of bands. They were doing this tour of odd places like people's backyards in along the West Coast. And he was telling us about that in the interview. Yeah. It was crazy. And they would post these pictures of them like set up in somebody's backyard with like folding chairs and stuff. It was nuts. Well, my wife found that they were coming to Denver. And they they came and they played this little brew, this little bar, this little brewery. Um, but it's a brand new brewery and like an up and coming kind of modern uh, um, development. 
So it's not like some dark, you know, well-worn bar. It was some kind of very fashionable hipster kind of place. And they just set up shop in the corner of this bar. And um, I was emailing with him and I said, hey, I saw you're gonna come. So I'll let you guys in on a little secret. I, um, I never feel comfortable asking people for free tickets. I know that Pat Francis does that a lot and he's always encouraging me to do it. And I just, I, it doesn't feel right to me. But what, what does happen sometimes is if I see someone who has been on the show is coming through town, I'll email them and say, you know, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but you're coming through town. I'm going to try and be there. Can I pop my head in and say hello? And usually when I do that, they offer to give me a free ticket, which makes me feel good because then I don't have to ask for it. Well, he didn't do that, which is seems in keeping with his personality, you know? So he, uh, he didn't offer, which is fine. And um, they had this tiered ticket situation where for, you could come see the show for 25 bucks. But for a hundred bucks, you could get a VIP ticket, which meant that you could hang out with him for a little while before the show. And I thought, well, I'm just gonna, I would kick myself if I didn't splurge on this, considering what a great guest he was. And that it was so fresh, and I don't know, he's such a grump, I don't know if I made any impression on him, but he did it on me, and so I wanted to be able to go. So I bought a $100 VIP ticket. And he asked me to bring a bunch of friends, bring people to the show, please. So I brought, I invited a ton of friends. I ended up bringing four or five and, um, but I was the only one doing the VIP. So I got there early. It turns out I was the only person to buy a VIP ticket. So I had him and Amanda. Yeah. So I had him and Amanda all to myself for like an hour before the show. I'm expecting I'm going to be one of like several people and it's going to be a quick handshake and an autograph and a picture and on your way, which is close to what the next one I'm going to tell you about was. But no, I was just me and those two sitting in the office of the guy whose bar it is, uh, shooting the breeze. And you could tell that Steve, so Steve was, uh, I I thought this was obvious, I'm not sure. But when we were doing our interview, Steve was smoking joints the entire time. And (laughs) And he's in Colorado, what a place for it. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So when I go back there, it's very clear to me that He's sort of using Amanda as a shield. Like, I don't want to get too close. I don't want to have to be on the hook to talk to anyone too much. So why don't you do a lot of the talking and I'll kind of swoop in and out. So Amanda and I did most of the, we chit-chatted a lot. He kind of swooped in and out. Well, he started getting a, a real bug up his butt about what, what pot she bought and brought back to the venue for them to smoke before the show. And he's going through this brown paper bag and he's look, did you get the stuff? Did you get the kind that we liked last time? And she's like, well, they didn't have that, but they had this. And I'm not, you and I are experts in this area. Right. So I couldn't tell you what <laughs> anything is called. Close. Right. I couldn't tell you what's good or what's bad or what anything was even called, but he was so distraught that she had bought, I guess the wrong kind of pot. And so but he got over it. So he rolls a joint and it's Thank a big God. one. Right. And he I've, goes, I've got, I've got a funny one here. You know what we should, what we should do. Uh, if he does it again, we should find that couple that we're with right next to us at the, at the tubes concert <laughs> and hook him up with them. Oh man, that would be funny. I'm sure they probably all know each other because they probably all meet in this, like, I don't know, pot den somewhere where it's like for experts, you know? 
So yeah, he goes out back and he smokes and then he comes back in and she goes out and she smokes and she and I talk for a long time. Apparently, so get this. I was like, how can you guys do this? I mean, it's just the two of them in a car driving around the Western United States playing in weird places. And she said, oh, I'm the one who talked him into this because when the church did their last tour, which I think was December, and I was going to go to that show when they came to Denver and I had to miss it at the last minute. She said they lost so much money doing this that I hooked him up with my booking agent who has done this for this kind of a tour for other people, including, I believe she mentioned Tommy Stinson, who was of the replacements. And because there's so much money to be made doing these kinds of tours, all the money goes directly into his pocket. That shocked me that he makes more money toting around the Western United States with her in a car playing in, you know, little bars than he did as the church doing the big thing, you know, in bigger venues. Um, That that wouldn't be such a a stretch because if you think about it, their overhead is low. Yeah. Because they're just, they're probably just taking one or two instruments each. Yep. Something like that. And then all they got to cover is their gas. Exactly. They they don't have to cover roadies. They don't have to... None of it. Cover transport of a ton of gear. Yeah, it was crazy. I hadn't ever thought of that, but there, but that's how it is. I asked them if they were a couple, and they both kind of, kind of laughed uncomfortably, which makes me think they might be like friends with benefits when they're both in the mood or something like that. I don't know uh-huh. what the deal is. He talked a lot of trash about the information society and like. Why would you listen to that crap? Why would you be in those kinds of bands? And we were like, because it's nostalgia. It was fun back then. You know, he says, what was it? And we were talking about the Hoodoo Gurus because I told him I had interviewed Dave Faulkner of the Hoodoo Gurus and mentioned to Dave what Steve had said. And so I got kind of in the middle of this little fight between the two of them. Not really, but I was kind of passing bad messages. Oh, Dave Faulkner doesn't like you. Yeah, well, I don't like Dave Faulkner either, you know? So, it, and I got in the middle of this thing. I didn't mean to, but I did. Well, so he's like, why would you listen to that? He says, I'm I'm Shakespeare and you're listening to cartoons. And, <laughs> and he said, and then Information Society, that stuff was garbage. That's like watching, you could be watching a great foreign film and instead you're watching some romantic comedy. And he was really on his high horse about this. And I was like, well, sometimes you're in the mood for a romantic comedy. You know, sometimes you're in the mood for cartoons. Anyway, he could not get past that. So anyway, we, we shot the breeze for a while. He's a grumpy, funny guy. I felt like if you go toe to toe with him, he kind of relaxes. And I felt like I did. He was nice. We got a picture taken. He's kind of scowling in the picture. If you saw it on Facebook, which is like, like happy Larry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he that's his kind of personality. That's fine. Um, the show was great. It was just him on an acoustic guitar and her on a on a keyboard. I didn't even know a lot of the songs that they played. They played some pretty deep, obscure tracks. And afterwards, I thought this was really interesting. At the merch table, he sold mostly prints of his artwork. In fact, one oh, of my wow. buddies bought one of them. And so, and if you think about it again, going back to this money making thing, uh, I don't know how much he would make selling, you know, a CD, but since no one buys CDs anymore, he's selling like prints for 75 bucks of a chalk drawing he did or a painting or whatever. And he's probably making bank. So anyway, good for him. That was kind of an interesting experience meeting the Steve Kilby. He was a trip. 
And then a couple of weeks ago, I had a similar, well, similar thing. Book of Love came through town. And you remember Susan Ottaviano, we had her on Uh a year and a half ago or something like that. Such a neat lady. And um, same thing. I saw they were coming. I emailed her. Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but um, I'm planning on seeing your show. And I'd love to just pop in and say hello. And she put me on the guest list, thankfully, a VIP list. There was a meet and greet. Uh, One of our listeners, Ben Frazier, who actually I got to know him from, he found us through that episode because he's a big Book of Love fan. And we've stayed in contact ever since. And so I thought, well, it only makes sense. And at the time that episode came out, he lived in Houston, but he has since moved to Colorado Springs. So I thought, well, it only makes sense to bring Ben along to this show as my plus one. So he did. And we we went and met them just briefly. It was a real quick in and out. Okay, get your picture, sign a thing, move along. That's what we did. But Susan and Ted Ottaviano, no relation, were both very nice. Susan, bless her heart, said that, our interview was the best one she'd ever done, which was really nice of her to say. So anyway, that's a quick book of love story. We saw their concert. It was it was fun. It was cute. It's just the two of them. It's kind of innocent like their music. But um, anyway, really nice people. And thank you, Ben, if you're listening, for coming with me on that. I thought it was fun. So those are some stories. Uh, I thought we could get into some recaps. We left off last time with Michael Linda. He was the next episode coming up. And yeah, tell tell everybody what you were telling me about Mike Linda. Oh, I have to, have to say, I'm totally blown away with the pickup of Mike Linda. I, I think that if that hasn't already passed up Robin Clark as our most listened to episode ever, it will soon. Yeah. Uh, it, the pickup on that has been phenomenal and big props to Level 42 for getting behind it. They, they got behind it, and it's on the front page of their website. I know. I couldn't believe it. I saw that, so Mike initially shared it, and it did really well. And about a week later, Level 42 shared it on social media and stuff. And I noticed it doing really well. And then I would notice that it never went away. It was still getting downloaded like hundreds of times a day, and it came out months ago. And I just thought, what? how is this happening? Why is this happening? And so I went on their website. Sure enough, it's right there on the front of their website. And it still does. It's getting downloaded numerous times a day. It's great. It's interesting because when I... So you guys may remember when I, we did our end of the year recap, I mentioned on there that I made the mistake once of telling somebody how much I loved them at the beginning of an episode of our interview. Before we settled into the interview, I was so, like, kind of not starstruck, but I was so, like happy to hear them on Skype that I was like, wow, I love you so much. And I worried that it kind of made me come off a little bit unprofessional. Uh, I planted a seed in their brain that I'm I'm like a fanboy, not an actual journalist, which I'm trying to be here. Well, it was Mike that I was talking about. And I, and I noticed throughout our interview that, and it, and it stems from me being overly complimentary and loving at first which didn't get in we cut that part out that uh, he he just I don't think as much for taking compliments you know not a lot of well thanks so much for saying that you know I really appreciate that. he's not really that type of guy he, although he was very very nice I'm not saying he wasn't nice but because I had been so effusive without you know much uh, of thanks or reciprocation in return I got really nervous that I was just coming off like this vulnerable idiot during the whole interview. 
And when I go back and listen to that one, that's all I hear is this guy who's like so overcome with love for the person he's talking to. He's kind of just naked and vulnerable. And so I should say that's the only episode that we've ever put out, I think, where I had you delete the part at the end where I normally tell the guest how much they mean to me. I really went for it on that one because he means a ton to me, but I had you cut it out because I just felt too naked doing it. And I'm kind of glad I did. I mean, especially now if it's our biggest episode and, you know, people all over the world are hearing that thing. I don't want them hearing me being some naked, vulnerable fanboy. I feel really dumb. So anyway, a little bit of trivia on that one. I can't remember. Did you, you weren't with us when we saw them in concert in Cambridge, were you? No. I think no, you'd already gone on your mission. Yep. Yeah, that was such a great show. 1991, oh, I think, or early. Yeah, it was fall of 91. The Houston's. Uh, going. Yeah. The Houston's and my, me and my brother and sister and a couple other people, we all went and saw Level 42 at the Corn Exchange there in Cambridge. It was such a great show. I'll never forget it. Okay, so that's the Mike Lindup story. I do love him, and I'm glad that one took hold. Um, their fans seem to appreciate it. Ray Parker Jr. I don't really have the red. There's not a ton of like behind the scenes drama to fill in on any of these. Ray Parker Jr. was great. He, I, for anyone that doesn't know, it's funny because I had been he had been near the top of my wish list, and our old guest Randy Hall is friends with him, and I pestered Randy for a while. Like, hey, could you please? introduced me to Ray and he's like, well, Ray kind of stays private. He probably won't do it. He doesn't do those kinds of things. I couldn't get Randy to introduce me to Ray. But then when Franz Strine came on to talk about Hired Gun and Ray was in the movie, Franz said, oh yeah, I can make that happen for you. But then Fran disappeared and I didn't think he would actually do it because that happens all the time. People say they'll hook me up and they don't. Well, a couple months later, he comes back out of the blue and says, Ray's ready to go. Let's do this. And so we did. And I thought I was really special. And then I found that he was doing like a ton of press at the time. He was on my friend Steve Cooper, uh, Cooper Talk podcast, and a bunch of others. And now Ray has since launched his own podcast. I haven't listened to all of it. I think there's only four or five episodes out there. The first one was with Rudy Sarzo, who was in Hired God and used to be in Quiet Riot and White Snake. It's a really interesting conversation. Anyway, I like that one. I wish that I had gone a little deeper on his pre-Ghostbuster career. That's what I really... I wanted him to know that I cared about all of his career, not just the Ghostbuster stuff. But that's what we ended up spending a lot of our time talking about. For a lot of people, that's probably how you... Yeah. You know, age, came to know about him was through that. Yeah. See, I didn't. I, I came up... I came to him a couple years earlier. I remember seeing him on Solid Gold singing I'm in love with the other woman and I loved him then and so I was I wanted to kind of communicate that to him because I'm sure he's always told he's the Ghostbusters guy or at least most of the time but it didn't end up mattering and he never shared his episode that I could think of and that's he's too cool to get bogged down with thinking about that stuff anyway I guarantee you so but anyway that was a fun one Nick Hayward from Haircut 100 was such a nice guy didn't you think he was nice Oh, totally. He comes across as kind of, kind of the guy you just want to give a hug. Yes, that's what I thought too. I And again, I don't know, I had always wanted to have him on, but for whatever reason I had it in my mind that he didn't do interviews or that he was quirky and not very easy to interview. I couldn't think, I don't know why I had this in my brain. So I pushed it off forever. 
And then it happened, and it was so easy, and he was so great. He was very, he often, hey, if I'm ever in your town, you know, let's meet up. He, not everyone does that, but when they do, it really makes me feel good. And he did that. And so I don't know if I'll ever see him or meet him, but he was so nice. And I heard from a lot of people that got turned on to, their, to his music from that. Like they only knew, you know, one or two Haircut 100 songs and hadn't really kept track of his solo stuff. It's a lot of it is so good. I think he's so special. So I hope you guys continue with that. If I'm honest, the solo stuff is better than the Haircut 100. Yeah, I, I I I go back and forth because that Haircut 100 album, Pelican West, is one of my all-time favorite albums. But he but there's only one of them, and he's got several solo albums, and so many of them are great. Especially last year's Woodland Echoes, amazing album. So I hope. And I have to say a thank you, too. I made it a point on that episode, for whatever reason, to encourage everybody that if they like the guests that we have on and they like our interviews, to go to the guests directly and tell them that. Say, hey, I heard you on The Hustle and you did so great and I went and bought this song or whatever on iTunes because of it. And a lot of you did. And I, I do want to say that that's a blanket statement for everybody we ever have on the show. Believe me, guys, it helps. If you got turned on to something from one of our episodes, please let the person know, you know, I heard this song that Yan played on the hustle and I loved it. So I bought it. Please let these people know. And a lot of you did for Nick Hayward. So I wanted to say thank you about that. Okay. Then we go to Mark Torian. Oh, before, oh yeah. Before you, go to, before you go to Mark, I just want to agree with that. When so many of these people that we have on, they really could use the, you know, yeah, just a, a a good pickup in in terms of their music. Yeah, some of them haven't released stuff in forever. I know, I know. And think about it. I mean, think about it. If you're if you're Nick Hayward, well, I mean, there's worse examples. I mean, if if you had think about it, if you're somebody who had like a hit in 1984, and people want to call you to come play on some nostalgia concert, they don't care about your new music. And they only want to hear these hits. And that's true for like most people, most casual music fans. But if you're still an artist and you're still a creative person, you get these songs or these urges to put something out there once in a while. And you may be sitting back thinking, well, who would even care? All anyone ever wants to hear is obsession or, you know, I can't wait at the at the rewind tour. They don't care about my new music. But if, the, if just a handful of people would let them know that what they do matters and that the new stuff matters, it's got to just make them feel better. And that's what we're trying to do here, you know? Validate the whole thing. So And, and introduce people to good music. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's why I try to cover all kinds of genres. I mean, yes, I grew up in the 80s, so that's the easiest stuff for me to focus on. But I try to cover all genres, all decades to give you guys a little bit of everything that's out there that hopefully some of it resonates. And when it does, you know, you put a little bit of money into these guys' coffers because they deserve it. Um, now, speaking of which, Mark Torian from Bullet Boys. Bullet Boys have been on my radar for all along. I've always liked Smooth Up In Ya. I admit I am not the expert on hard rock and heavy metal. I do really like that stuff a lot, but there are so many podcasts out there already covering that territory that I figure let them do it. I get a little shy because I think, well, what if I have someone like Mark Torian on my show and 
fans of Decibel Geek or whatever hear this and are like, John's such an idiot. He didn't even ask him about being in Rat or being in King Cobra or whatever, which I didn't, and I'll talk about that in a second. John sucks. That's my fear. So I always think, well, I'll just stick to what I know and let those guys handle the hard rock and heavy metal stuff. But then, I, so I thought I would do that, but then I never saw Mark popping up on any other podcast, not the ones I follow anyway, not often. And so I thought, well, why not me? I'm curious and I'm interested in his story and I like their music, so why not go after it? And I did, and he was nice enough to come on. He's going to come into a play here later in our conversation because one of you sent a question over here that relates to Mark that I'll talk about more later. But to me, he was a really nice guy. He has a reputation, whether he deserves it or not, for being full of it. Um, if you read things like Metal Sludge, the website, um, they hate him. And they say a lot of mean things about him. And I thought he was too. He was so nice and complimentary to me. I thought, I don't want to, I'm not going to argue. So here's the deal. I purposely didn't ask him about being in RAD. There's differing reports on how long he was actually in RAD. And Mark, and this did come out, he's a little bit of an embellisher, you know? He would say, oh yeah, I was in RAD for a long time and I helped write this and that. And then somebody from RAD would be like, he was there like two weeks and he didn't do anything. So I didn't want to get into it with him. Not that I would have argued with him, but I didn't even want to open the door to things that would um, allow, open it up for him to embellish. Because I just didn't want it to be that kind of a conversation. I just wanted to focus on the positive. Plus, I thought he would be appreciative that I took a lot of interest in the Motown side of his career, which is more interesting to me anyway. And uh, so we kind of went there instead. So I did hear from a lot of you. Why didn't you ask about Rat? That's why I didn't ask about Rat. I didn't want to provide a platform to hear information that might not be true. But having said that, I thought Mark was really super nice to us. So I would, I would say he was very gracious. Yes, he was. And I, um, so one thing about that, we were supposed to talk the night before we ended up doing that interview. And I called him like I was supposed to. And he seemed surprised that I was calling. And I said, oh, I'm John with The Hustle and we have an interview scheduled. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, can I call you back? Can we do this in like an hour? And I said, well, yeah, sure. And I said, actually, it was it was in the evening. And I said, I'm actually going to put my kids to bed in about an hour. Can we move this to two hours? That way I know my kids are in bed and I don't have to think about them or getting brushing their teeth or anything like that. And he was he was so that like warmed his heart. Oh, of course. Tell your kids hi from me. Give them all your love. It's you're so lucky to have little kids. That is great. He was so sweet about that. So I did, and I called him back two hours later, and he never answered. And it got me wondering if like was he just blowing smoke? But apparently he had a problem with his phone, and so we did it the very next night. So at the end of our interview, he was so complimentary about tell your kids hello. Give them my love. You stay close to those guys. That's why it was because the night before I had mentioned that I wanted to put them to bed before we did our interview. So he was a sweetheart, oh, I thought. He was very, I think he was not just gracious. I think he was quite appreciative because I, yeah. I remember him saying that he didn't hear that kind of those things very often. So yeah. he was really grateful that you, you, you told him what you told him. I thought that too. I think he knows, you know, what his reputation might be out there and so maybe he was just glad that somebody wasn't 
you know, dragging any of that up. One thing that's interesting is that about a week later, other members of Bullet Boys were on the Decibel Geek podcast talking about um, the creation of one of their albums. And I think it was Nick Sweta, who was a member of Bullet Boys. And Nick said on that interview, yeah, I heard Mark on a, another interview recently talking about how we got our band name. And there was definitely some revision there. And I, I messaged Chris Sinzak, like, do you think he was talking about me and our interview? And he, Chris said, I don't know. I wondered the same thing. So anyway, who knows what's true or not? All I can tell you is that Mark Torian, to me, was a very, very nice guy. So, all right. Then we have Martha Davis from the motels. She was a really sweet lady. I, I'm, I still can't believe that she shared that story about her daughter with us at the end. So tragic. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And I think this, you know, she illustrates, I think, a lot of why I'm so kind of into this idea of like, you know, building a life for yourself and paying your bills through creativity as opposed to like a regular corporate desk job. Because it seems really difficult to me. And even though I grew up wanting to do that, I mean, if I had my dream come true, I would be, I would have been Cameron Crowe and worked for Rolling Stone and, you know, made movies or whatever. That would have been my dream. But it didn't feel real. It felt like a lot of slogging away first, if you were to even make it. And I felt like when I was talking to her, this is, she was an example, as successful as she's been and as great a lady as she was, and how great her perspective was, it seemed like life had been hard. And I think she said as much. She had devoted her life to music and being creative. And the price you pay for that is being in your early 60s, living in a, on an alpaca farm in Oregon with roommates, not even on your own, with roommates. And you've got a daughter who died of a drug overdose, maybe because, and maybe you hold some, some guilt that, you know, if you had been there more or something that wouldn't have happened, I don't know. But I thought Martha is such a great lady and unfortunately an example of how difficult this life can be when you follow it at all costs. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, by the way, I heard from a lot of you that said I flirted with her. I think that's really weird because <laughs> I... Uh, I, first of all, I do not flirt with anybody. I will admit there have been a couple of people, and I think this is just natural, like with Martha or with Fiona, where there's sort of a natural chemistry. And that probably just comes from the base level of me being a man and them being a woman and, you know, how uh, heterosexuals feel when they talk to each other. I don't know. But uh, no, there was no I wouldn't even know how to flirt with a rock star if I could. So I just I get lucky sometimes that. Sometimes me and whoever I'm talking to have a really good chemistry, and that was one of those times. Blair Foster, the director of the Jan Wenner documentary, um, I was I'm nervous about that one because I think, yes, we did promote the movie and the fact that the movie is now out there on streaming services and iTunes and expanded and all that kind of stuff. But I really wanted to have a deep conversation with somebody, a debate about Jan and Rolling Stone magazine. And I hope I didn't blindside her with how opinionated I am about him and, and that world. Maybe she didn't think that's what she was signing up for. I don't know. But um, she was very gracious. I like that documentary. I don't love it. In fact, if I have one bit of criticism about, and I don't know if it's even her work, but the some of the documentaries she's worked on, like the George Harrison one, 
the James Brown, the Frank Sinatra, and this one, um, is that it's a little too respectful or honorary of its subject. It doesn't quite go into like the dark side. Look, we know some of these people, they're rock stars. They have dark sides, like them or not, you know? The documentaries she's worked on don't ever seem to go there deep enough with that dark side for me to show like a complete picture. But they are, I mean, you can't go wrong with a rock documentary. And so she makes good ones. So that's cool. I was really glad that she talked to me. And oh, I really liked that one. She did was, you? She was really interesting. Yeah. Good. Good. She I was, hope that I she, made it interesting. She was very interesting, and I mean, to hear some of the stuff she's worked on was was really cool. Have you seen that oh, Eagles documentary? By the way, I haven't. Oh, I need to. I know you're not an Eagles fan, but I like some of their stuff. Yeah. And and. Uh, I actually got to uh, stop in uh, a funny sto- funny story. Yeah, I stopped in Winslow, Arizona, one time on a on a road trip, and stopped so at the standing on the corner. That is so great. That is so great. I wish I had one of those pictures. Yeah, I, I, um... I had one of those pictures, and I lost that phone. When oh, I moved no! Back. Yep. oh no! Yeah, and I hadn't backed it up. Was this pre-social media, so you didn't post it somewhere? Oh, no, this was uh, before I was moving back here on oh. my, my road trip, on one of my road trips. Maybe, is it on I'd, Facebook somewhere? Would it be on no. your profile? Oh, bummer. No. Oh, that's too bad. I, it's, I didn't back up the phone for probably, oh, five months. Oh, boy. And uh, so I lost the phone when I was oh, catching shit. the flight to come come to Scotland. Oh, and yeah. Five months of foot was gone. Yikes. And standing on the corner. Oh, like, oh. That sucks. You don't want to lose that one. Yeah, I um well, if you ever get a chance to see that Eagles documentary, it's on Netflix. I don't know if you even have Netflix, but you gotta see it. It I don't like the band at all, but I love that movie. It is so fascinating. Alright, let's see. Neville Staple from the specials. I uh nothing too, you know, revolutionary about that one. I wouldn't say, you know, my goal in these is to always get the person to get as introspective as possible. And um, maybe he just wasn't that introspective a guy. I didn't think it was boring or anything like that. I thought he was really nice, but it wasn't like, you know, hard hitting or soul searching or anything like that. Um, Uh It was a trip looking at his face while interviewing him over Skype because I mean, the specials were a huge transformative band for me. And he was the coolest looking guy in that band back in 1979, 1980. And so to see his face looking back at me was crazy. That particular week, I think I tried to get it out fairly early. Mm. In fact, yeah, I did. I got it out uh, before the evening, before a normal time. Because there was a there was a game that night, so I was talking to folks the night before. I said, "I've got a really cool guest on tomorrow. You'll know that you recognise who they are." Oh, who is it? I'd been talking about the game shortly before that, and we were we were talking about so there's this particular referee that referees the division we're in and the division above, and he's. He's bald and he's really poor. Oh, okay. I mean, 
Not poor as in money poor, poor as in quality poor. One of these, one of these sports referees that can make the the fans of both teams pissed off at the same time. And so we've been talking about this guy, and we're like, oh, we're getting nothing out of this game. And then I start talking about the the show for the next night. I was like, you'll recognise this, and I played part of uh, Ghost Town. Oh, I recognise that. Who's that? Since that's the that's the person we we've got on the show tomorrow night. Oh, I thought you were. I thought it was the referee for the Dunfermline game. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Oh, that's great. <laughs> nice. He, that was a fun one. I, I don't know, you know, I don't, it didn't wasn't revolutionary, but Neville was a good dude. Yeah, he was. Oh, he was interesting. He I was. really liked him. Yeah. Okay, Mark Opitz. Now this one. <laughs> It just goes to show how wrong I am most of the time about these episodes because I almost didn't put that one out. Because, first of all, when I went back and listened, I, I noticed I had whistle nose for the first few minutes of the episode. And then I you can hear me like click my pen on and off while I'm taking notes and you can hear my pages rustle back and forth. I just thought I sounded so stupid and he, well, first of all, I should say I felt that way, and I hesitated to put it out, but we did, of course, because we put everything out. And I got lots of good feedback, which I'm so grateful for. Thank you, everybody. But that one was kind of tough, because I, I likened talking to him as somebody might feel riding like a bucking bronco. Just, they're trying to control the situation, but in reality, they're just holding on for dear life while this thing is going crazy. And it wasn't that he was crazy, but it was so difficult to have like a thoughtful relaxed conversation with him not because he was a bad person I'm not criticizing him in any way he's just a talker and he was probably used to controlling his environment and so he controlled this one and I don't always like to get into the origin stories of our guests you know so when did you learn about music and when did you pick up the guitar and when did you, how, why'd you name your band, whatever. I don't always go there because I figure that's like the easiest stuff that you could probably Google. And when I read somebody's book before having them on, I especially try to kind of skim over that part in the interview because I would imagine that's the least interesting part to you guys. So my thought was, well, I'll skim over the, his whole first part of the book with just focusing on these three pillars. And I'll come in with that kind of a thesis and he'll respect that and we can talk about the big transformative moments in his career and then we can go deep on Jimmy Barnes and NXS and the Ocean Blue but it did not go well and out of the gate he went off on tangents about you know the VABC and the channel being you know like the BBC and funded by the government and the different studios he worked in and people he worked for and I thought oh my gosh no one outside of Australia is going to think this is interesting and I'm I'm losing it. I'm losing him. But thankfully, once we got past all of that, I thought we had a really good conversation, especially about in excess. I would have I could have gone much, much deeper, and I feel really bad that we gave almost no time to Jimmy Barnes, who is a legend down there and one of my favorite vocalists ever. He's incredible. But uh, he and his band Cold Chisel got kind of you know, skimmed over really quickly. And I felt bad about that. I think about that all the time. And I have not done it. (laughs) 
mostly because Jimmy Barnes has like 25 solo albums and I have maybe five of them. And so I would have to go listen and fully absorb all of his other solo stuff. I'm less and less holding myself to that criteria as I go along, but that's always my plan. And so I really need to go after Jimmy because I would love to talk to him. He's incredible. Um, but that's why I don't. I should just get over it. So anyway, I really liked Mark. Once we got into the music, the stories behind the music, the thoughts on first tracks and NXS and all that kind of stuff, that then I think we had a really good conversation. It took us a while to get there. And um, it wasn't quite the conversation I wanted. But I'm learning that even though it wasn't what I wanted and therefore feels as if it's a disappointment to me personally, you guys seem to appreciate them for what they are. And when you do, I always really realize how dumb I am for feeling the way that I do. So anyway, thank you to all of you guys. And we have another, we have another long, long interview coming up with another producer in a couple of weeks that I think you're going to like. That one's really good too. And then lastly, Dave Faulkner. Oh, I, did you have anything to add about Mark Opitz? Oh, yeah. I was. I, mean, I find that interesting, the dynamic between him and the Dave Faulkner interview. Yeah, wasn't it? There are different yeah. sides to the story. Um, yeah. I do, because in the book, it sounds like Dave Faulkner and the Hootie Gurus come in and just out of the gate seem unhappy to be there. Like they don't want to be there and they record all their parts separately and um, they're not really open to Mark's suggestions. And when talking to Dave, you can kind of understand why, even though I don't agree with David at all, that they don't like the album Blow Your Cool that Mark worked on. And yet, I mean, I think most Hoodoo Guru fans would say that's their favorite album of theirs, or at least one of the best. It's not an embarrassment at all. And so one thing I learned in talking with David is that <laughs> I think David and I like different aspects of the Hoodoo Guru's career. Um, I found when I was listening, to, I've always been a fan of theirs, but Steve Kilby is right to some degree. They have some cartoonish songs and those are the ones that are the least interesting to me. But I think those are the ones that mean maybe the most to Dave which is kind of interesting to me too. I didn't come right out and say this, although I alluded to it a little bit with my Paul Westerberg uh, reference. My thinking is, if you have it within you to write a song as excellent as Bittersweet or Come Anytime or What's My Scene, why wouldn't you do that every single time? Why would you waste your time on songs like Wipeout and Hayride to Hell and the other kind of jokey, goofy stuff that they put out? And the kind of harder material that they got into in the 90s. I just think, why would you waste your time with that? You have it within you to change the world. Just do that every time. And Dave, I think, is like, no, nah, I like what I like, and I do what I do, and I'm going to keep doing it. So I, I can see, I can understand where he's coming from. They've got that creative bug in them, and yeah. they'll create what they feel inspired to do, and then some people will go. If you like it, you like it. Yeah. Great. If you don't like, if you don't like it, don't care. Yeah, that's what I figured out, with Dave. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, my whole thing is because in the states they're like a cult band and they haven't been heard from since the early '90s. 
you know. So if you're a fan, you just sit back like like we do for all of our guests. How are these people paying their bills? How are they making a living? And I was so relieved to know that even though they don't make a dent in the States anymore, at least they are being treated the way that they deserve back home in Australia. And they can make plenty of money playing, you know, a handful of big shows every year. And uh, they because they absolutely deserve that. And that's mainly what I wanted to know or get from that interview. So I'm glad that I did. Dan loved What's My Scene. Oh, and, isn't it good? Yeah, I loved that song when it came out. Me too. And Good Times. I love the song Good Times and he hates it. I, uh, it's just, it's crazy to me. We, we care about different aspects of his career, but whatever, that's fine. So anyway, I think that's the recap. Oh, we should talk about, uh, real quick. I don't know if you even listened to it, Jan, but, um, I got to go to Texas a couple of weeks ago for work and I stopped in, I drove down to the middle of absolutely freaking nowhere. This little town called Brownwood, Texas, to meet up with Paul Underwood, who's one of our listeners. And um, Paul is, I've gotten to know Paul a little bit. He's one of our very vocal listeners. And um, we've become buddies. And he does a radio show down there called Glory Days Radio. And since I was going to come to town, he invited me to come on the show and pick a topic. And so I I decided I wanted to talk about I want to isolate. I want to pick songs that have moments in them that, if you isolated them, they are like the magical, you know, goosebump-inducing moments in these songs. So we did, and I just, Paul, if you're listening, I am so humbled and grateful for what you did in our show. Because if anyone who goes back and listens to that episode, so much work on Paul's behalf to go in and like find snippets of our of old interviews we've done. I didn't send those to him. He went and found those on his own. And to edit them together and weave the songs in and out of our conversations. And it was cool having my wife and kids on there for posterity, if nothing else. So I love that. And I hope you guys did too. There's nothing better than, you know, debating music with people. So I'm curious what you what songs you guys would isolate in those moments too. But uh, that was a lot oh, of fun. I, so thank you, Paul. Uh, I've got one. Yeah, what is it? Belfast Child, Simple oh, Minds. yes. Yes, good one. There's, there's elements of that where it's just like, oh, yes. tingly. Yes, that's it. That Those are those moments, that tingle moment. Yes, good one. Especially so, when he, he, he talks about, I mean, you know what that, what that song's rooted in, right? Uh, I did. I'm blanking right now on what it is. It's... it's, it's I'm, if I remember correctly, it's rooted in the, the, the times of the Troubles in, Bel- in Belfast. Right. Yeah, it's a great song, and you know how I feel about that band. And so, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, very A lot of goosebumps on that one. He can sing. <laughs> yes, he can. And they just announced they're coming in concert to Denver later this year. So, um, And I don't think Mel Gaynor is their drummer on this tour. But I've only ever been able to see Simple Minds once because they never come to the States. I saw them in the early 90s in Salt Lake City and Bush was their opener. Remember Bush? Vaguely, yeah. Yeah, the like grungy rock band. They had just come out and half the crowd left because it was a college town. Half the crowd left after Bush was over. And I stayed, you know, I was there to see Simple Minds. Front and center, Jim reaches down, slaps my hand seems into my girlfriend who's there with me at the time 
It was pretty magical. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Anyway, so I'll finally be able to see them again. Uh, okay, so let's go to the Q&A section of this. I hope these things are interesting for you guys. Um, I always, it, it was kind of last minute, but I threw out an uh, invitation to submit some questions. Let's see, Mike Wagner asks, do I ever think when I'm interviewing, I don't believe this guy, but I don't want to insert my point of view into this conversation. The one that comes to mind is Mark, Mark Torian, like I mentioned from Bullet Boys. Um, I could tell while we were talking that he was kind of giving me the, you know, the storyteller's version of things, whether it be the name of the band or how b busy they are or success or whatever. But I don't care. I don't want to fault him for it. So I thought he was he was great. A um, couple others that I thought. So here's the deal. It's not that it's that I can tell people aren't being 100 percent straight with me. Uh, but that's okay. I mean, who am I? You know, if I'm asking them how they make a living and they're not giving me the, all the details, that's fine. It's their personal business. I still ask. But so some people like, for instance, early on, I think it was episode 12, 13, something like that. We had this guy on named Slim Man who in the late 70s, early 80s, he was in a band called Boot Camp and they had two videos played the first 24 hours of MTV and then probably never again. And now he's like, and they're a great rock band of the, of its era. And now he's a smooth jazz artist. And I was trying to get him to kind of talk more about how you go from being like a rock guy to a smooth jazz artist. And somewhere in the middle, he recorded an album for Motown that got put on the shelf. And he's just kind of a slippery character. Doesn't seem to like let anyone in, you know, not a lot of, not forthcoming with who he really is or his details or anything like that. So I could tell that he wasn't being 100% straight with me. But, you know, it's not like he was being a jerk or telling, feeding me lies or anything. He just um, kind of wasn't going there like I wanted him to. And then another one, I think, uh, Bertie Higgins. Like, like, for instance, every single song, I think, that Bertie Higgins has ever put out has some, like, pirate or nautical theme to it. And I just think that's a really odd thing to to base your entire career on. And I asked him about it, and he was just more like, oh, no, it's just, it's just what comes to mind. And I think that can't be right. You had to have staked this out at some point, you know, 40 years ago, decided I'm going to only write songs about pirates. That's such an odd thing, you know, but that's what he did. So um, anyway, I you could just tell... I liked him. I thought he was interesting. Oh, he was great. No, he was... Again, I'm not saying anyone was lying or embellishing, other than Mark, maybe a little bit. But um, it's just... <laughs> it's just you could tell that they're not answering the question directly. You know what I mean? That's all. So that's the answer to that one, Mike. Uh, let's see here. That's also why I started... Why I thought we should do these recap episodes, because then you can hear... What Yan and I think, it, not you know, we're not trash talking. There's nobody to trash talk. Everyone's been great. Even Verdine White was nice enough to talk to us. So I don't have. It's not like I'm slinging crap at anybody. It's just I thought I would fill you guys in on what happens behind the scenes. Um, let's see thoughts. Okay, this is from Brian Morris. He sent us a couple thoughts on the new Fleetwood Mac with uh, Neil Finn and Mike Campbell, as well as. Thoughts on Neil Young reforming Crazy Horse and Dave Matthews Band getting back together. 
I'm curious what you think about this stuff too, Yan. I'll tell you right uh, now. Yeah. You want me to go first? Yeah, why don't you go first? You go first. Okay. Honestly. All right. Well, never really a, as big a crowded house fan as, as you were back in the day. Yeah. Uh, so for me, uh, Finn, uh, he's good. Any voice wise, he'll be a great fit for, for um, Fleetwood Mac. But to me, I prefer the one of the earlier lineups. Mm. So that you don't think it's weird that Neil Finn's in, in Fleetwood Mac now? No, no, no. I mean, it definitely, from a voice perspective, like I said, from a voice perspective, he'd be a good fit. Mm. He'd, he'd probably do fairly well on, on some of their on some of their stuff. Mm. Kind of similar vein to Axel with ACDC. True. Where, you know, some people go, oh, that's never going to work. But then you hear it live and it oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, Neil Young never really been a big Neil Young fan either. So like uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, I prefer uh-huh. the, them without Neil Young. Me too. Yeah. And uh, Dave Matthews, oh, good one. I like some of their stuff. Yeah. Have you ever seen them live? No, I'd really? like to. Yeah. I've only seen them once. Um, I saw him once acoustically by himself, but I saw them live once in fact they have an album called live at red rocks and that was the show i was at so um i was a big dave matthews guy early on their first three or four albums and then it just i kind of lost interest and uh i've never really get regained interest in fact i don't think i've pulled out a dave matthews band cd in 20 years it's been forever really? yeah now having said all that I mean- have what's that how many do you have i think i only have two probably at this point i think i got under the table and dreaming and crush was that the second i think was that the next one i had the first um remember two things and when that day when i saw them at concert in red rocks i bought every cd they had at the merch table because i was so into them and um i remember to this day they did not play what would you say at that concert even though that was the big hit and for a while there, I loved it. And then it all kind of kept sounding the same. And then it becomes, I think, you know how there's people out there who can't stand listening to the 80s because it's just too, like, synthesizer and it sounds too dated for them. Their ear just isn't tuned to that. I feel that way about some of the music from the 90s. And uh-huh. they're, they're one of them. It's just, it's so 90s to me. Now, I realize as I'm saying that, that, I should use against myself the same argument I use against those people who hate the eighties and I do, but I, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't move me anymore. And they're one of those bands that just don't move me. Having said that they have been gone for a long time. It feels like, and I think enough absences, there's been enough absence there where I'm mildly curious what they're going to do now. So I would probably give it a listen. Yeah. Their last album before come tomorrow is 2012. So, yeah, it's been a while. So I, uh, I'm i curious. I might, maybe it's time for a Dave Matthews resurgence. Um, I'm with you. I've never, been, I've never been that big into Neil Young. Uh, I've got probably half a dozen Neil Young CDs, and they're all from like the late 70s, that Tonight's the Night, Russ Never Sleeps, that era, Harvest. His voice drives me nuts. He also seems to release an album for every thought he ever has, and I just don't, I don't care enough about it to keep up. Um, so yeah, he doesn't do much for me now, Neil Finn and Fleetwood Mac. 
I uh, this blew me away, and tons of people because they know what a Neil Finn fan I am came to me wanting to know what I thought. I, it doesn't make sense, and the reason I say that is because Neil has seemed to be such an independent artist. He does whatever he wants, follows any muse he ever has. To be under the thumb or under the, you know, the corporate management of an institution as huge as Fleetwood Mac just seems like an odd place for him to be. Now, I could it makes perfect sense for Mike Campbell. He is the exact guy to go get that job, I think. After being in the Heartbreakers, he's the perfect pick for something like uh, Fleetwood Mac. Neil just doesn't make sense to me. But <laughs> having said that, I will definitely go see this tour now, just out of morbid curiosity. <laughs> and I can't see it going beyond this. I could see it maybe being like this one tour. These guys are going to join. It's gonna, there's going to be a novelty aspect to it. And then afterwards, everyone goes away and goes back to their normal lives. That's what I'm assuming is going to happen. If this lasts longer and Neil actually works on an album of theirs and they keep touring, that would shock me to death. I could not. I can't even imagine it. So, so you're going out of a sort of a Scooby-Doo sort of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's where I'm coming from on this Neil Finn thing. That's about as much as I think is going to happen here. We'll see. <clears throat> Uh, let's see other favorite music podcasts. I don't. Yeah, do you even listen to podcasts? Uh, for a long time, I didn't have the time. <laughs> really right. have the time to. Right. And uh, now I have the time to, and I'm I'm busy to. And I find myself wanting to, and then filling my time with other stuff. Sure. I will say I listen to a ton, and I know it's because I commute to work every day on the bus. And I listen at double or triple speed so I can burn through two or three. My commute is about 45 minutes. I don't like listening to podcasts in the car. I mean, I still listen when I'm at the gym or when I'm doing the dishes or sometimes I listen to podcasts while I'm watching a sporting event like the Jazz or in the playoffs right now. So I'll listen to podcasts while I'm watching the game or whatever. But um, as far as music podcasts go, I listen to a lot of the same ones that you know, all of our colleagues, Rock and or Roll, The Decibel, Decibel Geek, uh, Inside Music I Cast. I like that one a lot. What were you going to say? I want to listen to, to Ken's one, one of Ken's ones. Oh, yeah. Yep, his pop culture ones are fun. I am not the cheap trick expert or the monkeys expert that he is. So I listen to those. He, he does those podcasts. I listen to some of them, but not every single one. Um, some of the Kiss guys, I follow those. One of my favorites that is less known that I want to make sure I mention is called Permanent Record. And the host, it's hosted by a husband and wife, Brian and Sarah Lennon. And I've gotten to know Brian a little bit. And uh, I mentioned this one because it's almost all new wave. So, you know, they, they'll pick an album like Tears for Fear, Songs from the Big Chair, and they'll go deep for like three weeks on the history of the band, the history of the making of the album, who worked on it, what they did, how they feel about the songs. I, I want to mention that one specifically because I feel like it's lesser known than some of the other ones that, you know, like Rock Solid or whatever. You know, we all kind of listen to the same ones if we're in this industry or in this community. But a permanent record is not necessarily in this community. I wish they were, but I think that's a great one. So check out Permanent Record if you like 80s New Wave, because that's what they're all about. They've done, they've deep dive Culture Club, uh, AHA, 
The Fix, David Bowie, oh, Erasure. Pizza, huh? Yes. So it's a, it's a good one. I think it's a good one. And they're really nice people. And it's this sounds weird, but it's really nice to hear from a woman's perspective sometimes. Sarah holds her own. She's great. I like Brian a lot. He's who I know better. But it's just cool to hear you know a woman up there going toe-to-toe, giving her thoughts. I like it a lot. So check out Permanent Record. Uh, I, I like anything. I like, I mean, music-wise, I'll listen to just about anything. Yes. Yeah. I, you and I are like that way. I think our our music tastes are pretty wide and varied. We like almost everything out there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't oh, like some of the, I definitely don't like some of the gangster rap. Yeah. That's kind of where I draw the line, too. I do love yeah. classic rap from, like, the 80s and 90s, De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest and Public Enemy and... Run DMC. Run DMC, Beastie Boys. I love all that stuff, but I couldn't, I didn't stick with it when it got into gangster rap. That's not for me. And I don't follow new country as much. I love old country, Johnny Cash and Buck Owens and Roger Miller and Waylon Jennings. I love all that stuff. I don't follow new country very much. I'll tell you a funny story about Johnny Cash stuff. Yeah, tell me. You, you know, I run my own business. I'm a consultant and occasionally I'll, I'll take a gig where where I'm traveling all the time. Mm-hmm. So I was working in Dublin for you know, six, seven months and I decided to stay in the temp uh, decided to stay one week in no actually two weeks in the Temple Bar area in a particular pub that had a hostel attached to it. And I paid for a four berth room for myself for the week and uh, decided to have a, a walk around on a Sunday night. So I was there early. I was there on the Sunday night early, ready to go for the Monday morning. So I usually either I used to usually fly in on the Monday morning, but this this particular week I flew on the Sunday the night before. Mm. And so I was walking around Temple Bar, and everywhere's got live music. So there's live traditional Irish music. And I'm like, oh great. I'll, I'll hear some, some good stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm walking by this one, and what am I hearing? It says it's got a big signpost outside, live traditional Irish music, and she's singing Johnny Cash, Ring what? of Fire. No. Yeah. Right. Does she not know that's not traditional Irish music? I guess not. I guess not. Influenced by, maybe, but not exactly. Interesting. Yeah. I've never been to Dublin. I've always wanted to go. Oh, love Dublin. Yeah, I bet. Okay, let's see. From Andy Solemn, what is the first stuff you heard as a little kid that made you think music was pretty cool? I My very first favorite song that I can remember was Celebrate by uh, Cool and the Gang. I think that was 1980. I probably would have been seven. That was the first time that I remember liking a song, hearing it on the radio, figuring out that with the radio's on, you might hear it again eventually, that there's this thing that's just constantly pouring music out there and some of the songs are good and they play it every so often and so yeah celebrate from cool in the gang was my first major uh favorite song i think i was seven and this is going to sound really odd but one of the things that really shaped my love for music is my dad is a retired airline flight attendant and so i grew up going anywhere I ever wanted on the airplane with him. And back in the day, 
you would they would have in the back of the magazine different radio stations. You know, you could plug in those clunky plastic headsets into like the plunger in your near the ashtray in your armrest. And you could turn the little dial to the different radio station you wanted and they'd be themed, you know, like there'd be a classical or a jazz and a comedy and there was always a rock station and it would play the same like 20 songs over and over again. And as a kid growing up on airplanes, kind of like I did, that was my favorite thing was to who, what's going to be on the airplane this month and getting the back of the magazine first and foremost what songs are there? Which ones do I like? What movies were they going to show on the plane? And um, that was huge for me on kind of shaping a love of music. It sounds like a really odd thing, but it just does. And there are songs, when I hear them today, Hey 19 by Steely Dan makes me feel like it is 1980 and I'm seven years old and I'm getting on an airplane in like New York City after spending the weekend on a layover with my dad and I'm in first class. I got my ginger ale, you know, and my, my, they gave me a little fake airline wings to put on my shirt because I'm a little kid. Ah, those memories. And uh, that's when I got turned on to David Bowie. I heard Let's Dance. I'd already already heard uh, Let's Dance on the radio, but I remember sitting in first class listening to the music on the radio that was played on the airplane. Let's Dance was on there. And when he sang Tremble Like a Flower and his voice broke, I thought it was the craziest, weirdest, most revolutionary thing I'd ever heard in my life. And that's what kicked me off on my my love and obsession with David Bowie. Um, so that's, those are the big ones. Also, when I was growing up, my mom was the main office manager of a shopping mall. And so I spent my every summer day practically and weekends just walking around the mall with my friends, eating in the food court, rummaging through record stores, picking up girls, going into the keyhole. If you guys remember, it's old stores called the keyhole where you could buy like patches and t-shirts and stickers of bands and stuff like that. Anyway. That kind of stuff shaped my, and I was the oldest of my, I've mentioned my cousin Rick before, I was the oldest child, so I didn't have that older sibling to turn me on to music, but my cousin Rick was two years older than me, and he got a CD collection and a CD player before I did, and he, I, so he was cool, and he had the English Beats Greatest Hits, and he had the Specials, and he had Jethro Tull, and all these bands that absolutely shaped and formed who I am. It was from wanting to be like him when I'm like 11, 12 years old and he's 13, 14, 15 years old and he's got a CD collection. So that's the stuff that really shaped me. What about you? Oh, let me get back to that because I'd written a whole bunch of stuff here. So when I was a kid, my grandfather had a huge classical music collection. He had a ton of stuff and it was usually the, are you familiar with Deutsche Grammophon? Mm-hmm. So they, they were usually the, some of the higher quality recordings. And uh, one of the earliest ones he had, and I think it's a Von Karajan and the Berlin Philharmonic. It's the Franz, Franz von Suppe uh, Light Cavalry Overture. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Probably, but, you, my, probably, but not off the top of my head. I used to listen to that a lot as a kid. Really? And, and Dvorak's New World Symphony and uh, 
the one, the recording that he had had the, the full New World Symphony on it, and then additional material had Smetana. Smetana's Marvelous is amazing. Mm. It's really sort of like uh, Wagner esque in fact. Wow. Look at you. Uh, yeah. Classical music knocking you out as a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I still have a lot of that stuff today. Mm. I was really excited about getting hold of that collection a few years back, and it got destroyed in a flood. Oh, no! And it was all vinyl. Oh! Bummer! Yeah. Oh, wow. See, I mean, you know this, because you know my dad. My dad conducted, was a conductor for symphony and choruses, for a symphony and chorus for most of my life. And um, he got to be fairly well-known even a little bit in our in his own way. And so I grew up, you know, he's taught piano my whole life. He was a conductor. I used to have to go, he put on Handel's Messiah every year. And um, I was, so he was, that was his world. And my world was like basketball and baseball. And he was not an athlete at all. And so the best way that I knew to rebel against my dad was to not get into any of that stuff. So I've had a grand piano in my house my entire life, and I never learned how to play piano. I tried a couple of times. I didn't stick with it. And of course, to this day, I regret all of it because I wish that I hadn't been so rebellious, but I just was. I wasn't going to give in, you know. He would want me to learn. I took violin for a little while. I took piano. I took clarinet for a little while. Uh, I got, I talked him into getting me a saxophone for Christmas one year, which he did, but then he didn't arrange for me to ever take any lessons because he was mad that I was learning the saxophone and not some instrument he wanted. And so I never, (laughs) it just sat in my room for years. I didn't know. I was like 12. I didn't know how to set up lessons to learn a saxophone. So anyway, so that's, I, I missed all of that until I got older and could appreciate classical music. Because as a kid, it was just a way to rebel against my dad. Uh, okay, let's uh, see here. I can see that from yeah, <laughs> you can, right? That's my dad, isn't it? Uh, okay, let's see. From Paul Hicks, what's the best CD packaging gimmick we've seen? I don't even quite know how to answer that one. That one's tough. I don't collect vinyl. I don't think you do either. So I don't, I can't, I don't know of any like really super cool vinyl packaging gimmicks. Um, oh, I would collect vinyl if I had a record player. Yeah, same. Well, I'm the same, and I purposely don't buy a record player because I know I will just buy vinyl nonstop, and I'll put my family in the poorhouse. So I don't do it. I don't know. That being said, I really like those double disc, like special collectors editions of albums that come out with the. They're in those like clear plastic sleeves. I have a bunch of those. I like them. Gimmick? I don't know. I will say one of my, maybe my favorite box set of all time, if that's that's sort of in keeping with this, it's called No Thanks, and it's four discs of punk rock, and it's so amazing. Every song is great. That's probably my favorite box set of all time. I can't speak to the packaging, though. Um, well, if, you, if you go along that lines for me, uh, number of years back, I, I don't know where all the discs are anymore. <laughs> I got uh, the an Enya box set. Yeah, and the whole case was the whole case was like like a velvety material. <laughs> I have it too. That's so oh, funny. Got that one. Well, uh, 
so this it's four CDs. Yeah, it's actually shockingly good. I say that because I don't think people think Enya. I don't think people think about Enya one way or the other, other than it's like pleasant background music. But it's really nice. Someone at church died, and I got his CD collection, and that was in it. And so, um, yeah, I actually got that like in the last couple of years. That's so interesting. Oh, I loved, I loved her stuff. Yeah. I had most of her albums at one point. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really nice one, actually. Um, okay, let's see. He also asked, Paul Hicks, best movie soundtrack of the 80s to turn people on to music. And I should say, he says the correct answer here is Pretty in Pink, which I disagree with. Um, not that I don't think that's an excellent soundtrack. My reasoning for it not being the best is that it's mostly bands that are already established. New Order, NXS, Psychedelic Furs. Those guys were already big bands, or big-ish, or at the height of their fame or whatever when that soundtrack came out. And so, um, if you are completely unfamiliar with those bands, then yeah, Pretty Pink's a great soundtrack. But I go in different directions because if we're really truly discovering here new music, by being turned on to music you don't already know, my pick, my favorite soundtrack of all time is Some Kind of Wonderful. Oh, so, oh, that's a good movie too. Yes, that's also my favorite John Hughes movie of that six, those six movies from that era. Um, so I, most of the bands on there you've never heard of, but it's a great soundtrack start to finish. Every song is good. So that's my pick for that one. What about you? See, I, see, I didn't like Pretty and Pink as a movie. That's with the soundtrack. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, uh, for me, I've got, I've got like three in the list. Uh, Footloose. Yeah, of course. Oh, that's such a good soundtrack. And Ken, Kenny Logan snapped off with, with the title track. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Some good stuff on there. And then the original Back to the Future soundtrack. Yeah. Another classic. Oh yeah, Hugh Lewis on there, and then the the Barry Jonah Be Good. What, mm-hmm. what, what else can you say about that? It's great. It's great. Uh, and then, I mean, if you're really gonna go, I, mean, I know it's all established musicians on this one, but the Blues Brothers soundtrack. Mm. I'll come back to that one every time. Absolute killer soundtrack. You love that one. You've I've oh. seen you mention that many times before, and I don't own that one. Oh, I, I've owned it a couple of times. Have you? Yep. Yeah. And I love the movie too. Yeah. I need to get on that one. I need to listen to that one more. Um, this is actually a topic. I'm kind of obsessed with movie soundtracks, as I've made it clear on here a few times. So if anyone wants to talk movie soundtracks, especially 80s ones, I'm your man. And I will put in a couple of plugs. These are super obscure, but they're really good. If you like... Uh, more like hard rock and heavy metal. A really good soundtrack that's very obscure is from a movie called Dudes. It's something that Amy Heckerling made um, after Fast Times at Ridgemont High and before Clueless. Or, I'm sorry, not Amy Heckerling. Uh, Penelope Spirits, who directed Wayne's World and those Decline of Western Civilization movies. She made this movie, and on the soundtrack is like Wasp, Megadeth, Jane's Addiction, Steve Vai... It's uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not saying it's the best ever, but it's a really... If you want something obscure and interesting and you like that genre, check that out. And then another That'd one... That'd be that, just for the soundtrack. Totally. It's a great, great soundtrack. 
Uh, another soundtrack that I really, really like, if you like R&B, especially the 80s, is, do you remember that Goldie Hawn football movie, Wildcats? Yep, love it. Me too. Well, the soundtrack to Wildcats is actually really, really good. Uh, it does not have that weird LL Cool J song, Football, that's on the that they play over the opening and closing credits. But throughout, it's got really solid R&B songs from the era. So... Anyway, those are two of like my sneaky guilty pleasure ones. Let's rapid fire some of these dream guests. Uh, we get this question a lot. I think I've answered it before, but I love the question anyway, so it doesn't bother me. Plus my list kind of keeps growing and growing. I will tell you, these are the cream of the crop. Talk Talk, Mark Hollis from Talk Talk is number one on my list. If I could talk to anybody, he would be number one. Number two on that list is Green, Green Gartside, the lead singer of Scritty Politti. Uh, and before you ask, I have no idea how to find Mark Hollis because he's in retirement and is purposely extremely hard to find. He hasn't done any press of any kind in like 20 years. Green Gartside, I was told, might talk to me. He hates doing interviews. He might talk to me if he had something to promote. I've emailed him a couple of times like, hey, you're putting on, you're doing some shows. Why don't you talk to me? We have a multi, you know, we're all over the globe. Never heard back. So I doubt either of those ever happened. Uh, after them, Nana Cherry is a big wish for me. Um, talk about somebody who came on strong, disappeared, and how do they pay their bills? She has, I've gotten turned down every time I've ever asked. Anita Baker is another who uh, I loved a couple of her albums, one of the best voices ever. I've heard she's really, really difficult to work with. In fact, Olita Adams said as much, and we cut it out to be nice. <laughs> but Anita just kind of disappeared. She's out there a little bit on Twitter. That's about it. I'd love to know what her story is. Terrence Trent Darby. As you guys probably know, he's changed his name. He lives in Europe somewhere. Still puts out music under this other name, Sananda Matraya or something like that. I've reached out to him a few times and I always get told he's too busy working on new music, even when I know he's not. Um, so he won't talk to me. I don't know if he would be as introspective as I'd want him to be anyway. I would want him to really fully explain why he went into hiding and changed his name, and I don't know if he would. Uh, and then lastly, Bruce Hornsby is somebody I would love to talk to. Same thing. Why did you come out one way, then completely change your style, and then change your back on your on what made you famous? And um, I reached out to his people a couple of times. They told me years ago he doesn't like to talk about the past. And so I doubt I will ever have him on the show. That being said, uh, in a couple of months, we have an interview coming out with somebody who was in the range. So that's as good as we're going to get, probably. Anyway, those are my picks. Okay, for me, I've got any of the three guys that made up the thorns. And I'll tell you a, a backdrop story to one of them so that's Sean Mullins Matthew Sweet and Pete Drogue and uh, I was out visiting my sister and uh, we were talk I was talking about the Thorns and I was talking about Sean Mullins and she's like who's Sean Mullins like, how could you not know Sean Mullins <laughs> like lullaby yeah what's that no, never heard that. What? How can you not heard that? Yeah. Everybody's heard that. Um, so one, any one of them, I mean, some of their stuff sounds very kind of like 
Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah, yeah. And they've just got a really great blend. But they only did the one album together. Yeah. Back in oh, two thousand, early two thousands, like two thousand two, two thousand three, thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, and I bought that one again, so I have a hard copy of it. Good. Uh, Alison Krauss made my list. Let me tell you about the Thorns real quick. So Sean Mullins is also on my list because I think he would be really interesting to talk to because he's known primarily for that song, Lullaby. So like, how do you build your career off this one song? Uh, Matthew Sweet. I'm a big Matthew Sweet fan. I have almost all of his albums and I've seen him a concert many times. And he's one of those people that I heard a really excellent interview with a while back. And so I kind of lost some steam because I felt like, well, there's already a really good interview out there if you want to hear from Matthew Sweet. I don't know if I can top it, so I don't try. I need to get over that, but that's what stifles my enthusiasm for some of these people is if I know something is really good and it's already out there, then I don't get, I don't. I figure I don't need to do it. Pete Droge, I don't know as well, but that's my story on those two. Yeah, uh, so Alison Krauss would be on, on my list. I mean, what else can you say? Yeah. They say about her, she just has like one of the most amazing voices ever. And they've been at it for forever. Union Station, that blend of their, their, them with her, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the next one for me is any of the guys that were in Screaming Trees. So you got the likes of Mike Lanigan, the Connor Brothers are as well. Okay. E- either one of them. Uh, another another one I've got down is Mike Ness. He'd be interesting. I've just almost sent him an email the other day, and I didn't because I already have like three months worth of interviews in the can at the moment, and so I'm kind of actually trying to slow down a little bit because uh-huh. anyone I interview now wouldn't come out until August. But right. um, when I get back on the horse, he's going to be one of the first people I reach out to. And so, yeah, he'd be he'd be interesting. Yeah, and they they've got some great, great music. Yeah, I actually saw some of their stuff on the shelf at the same time. I bought the thorns, and I ended up buying the thorns instead. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Good stuff. But, yeah, uh, Kate Bush is another one I would love. Me too. To see. Oh, and then Enya, she's yep. kind. She goes quiet for quite long periods of time she does i've thought about her i don't know if she does any interviews i and same with kate bush i would love i would talk to either of them in a second but i don't think they do it yeah and then my last two john farnham he's on my list as well yeah just fantastic singer Mm -hmm. just ah and he's probably another one of those ones that makes bank off of that one song Mm mm-hmm yeah. You know, it's just everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and then my last one, I figure Ruby Turner would probably be quite an interesting one. Ruby Turner? Who's that? Uh-huh. She is kind of, she sings with, she's on on, uh, on tour quite a lot with Jules Holland. Oh, and, right. Her. Okay. So, so she, she goes out a lot with, with Jules and his band. You know, Gilson will probably know her quite mm. well. Yeah. You're right. I forgot about her. Okay, cool. Good ones. Uh, let's see. 
Okay, these ones are mostly about interviews. Um, what questions do I regret asking? Um, I don't really regret too many. And the ones that I do regret, we cut them out. So you wouldn't know them anyway. Like if they fall flat or he doesn't know what I'm talking about or something like that. Um, a couple came to mind. One of them relates to Neville. I, I think a couple of times I've wanted to ask something of somebody and I didn't do it right. And so I didn't get the answer I wanted. And one of those times was with Neville. I got, because when the interview kicked off, I wanted to know if there was something going on between him and the specials. And that's why he wasn't in the band anymore. And he was saying, no, we all get along fine. This idea or angle of getting along became a theme. And so when I would ask him about the English beat or madness, I think because of either the way I asked the question or because of having established whether he was getting along with the specials, his responses seemed to come from a place of, oh, no, I, I do get along with madness or English beat, as opposed to, let me tell you a story about madness or a story about the English beat, which is what I really wanted to know. And I think I failed in asking that question the correct way. And that was my fault. Um, along those same lines, Robert Tepper, which is still one of my favorite interviews ever, just the fact that we got him on here. I wanted to know beat by beat. Tell me about writing the song No Easy Way Out from the germ of the idea to getting it out there. And when I asked him that question, he went immediately into, well, this guy played on it and this guy played on it and this guy produced it. And that's fine, but that's not what I wanted to know. And I didn't do a well, a good enough job of asking the question as directly as I wanted to get the response I wanted. And then I didn't go back and make him clarify. I would almost want to get him back on for like 15 minutes just to break down. I had this idea. I was arguing with my wife and then I got pulled out my guitar and I strummed these chords and they turned into these chords. That's what I wanted to know. One other, I don't even know if this fits the question, but I'll tell you anyway. So when I read Bruce Thomas of Elvis Costello and the Attractions book, he mentioned going on tour with Squeeze and he was talking about what close quarters they were in. They were riding around in this van and it was everybody kind of on top of each other. And for whatever reason, in that moment, I thought, I kind of imagined what it must be like being stuck in a car with a bunch of dudes and like maybe some, maybe one of them's got gas and like he's just, and then I started thinking, boy, what do Elvis Costello's farts smell like, you know, or like <laughs> Glenn Tilbrook, like who has, and so, and I thought maybe that's what he was getting at by talking about everyone being in close quarters is that that was like code for believe me, we all went out for curry and it was bad in the van afterwards. I thought that might be what he was asking or getting to. So I asked him about that and he didn't know what I was, he kind of played dumb or was like, oh no, that's not what I meant. And I couldn't tell you who had the worst gas. And I think that's a really good question. And I want to ask it more because it adds this <clears throat> dimension that I'm going for. I want these interviews. I want you to feel like you're there in the room with these interviews but I chickened out after that because he kind of made me feel dumb for asking. I think you ended up cutting that out, thankfully. So, so. yeah. Anyway, uh, what questions do I regret not asking? Um, I, I wouldn't say – I do think sometimes I let people off the hook uh, a little bit when it gets to some, I don't know, darker things. And, I, and I've thought about this. I, I think I'm pretty good at it, but maybe sometimes I would go a little deeper on certain aspects of people's lives or the – the dark side or the bad business decisions or whatever. And I let people off the hook a little bit. 
And I think one of the reasons I do that is because very few people, only a small handful of guests that we've ever had on the show have come to us. I am always going to them. And because I'm going to them, I don't feel like I have the right to go there on my questioning. You know, they're doing me a favor by being on our show, not vice versa. If I were Mark Marin and people were coming to me, but publicists, which ha- does happen now once in a while, some publicists is like, ooh, we really want to get our our person on your show. Then it would be like, okay, well, I hope they know I'm going to ask whatever I want to ask. But because I'm the one soliciting them to come on, I don't ever feel like I can do that. Has an interview ever made me not like their music anymore? No, I wouldn't say so. I would say that because I deep dive people's music so much before I talk to them, I can get really burnt out. Like I don't want to listen to their music again for a while. Uh, That actually happened recently with both The Church and The Hoodoo Gurus, coincidentally. Two bands that I love, but after I listened to them nonstop for like a month leading up to the interview, it's like, okay, I need a break from these bands for a while. Yeah, I can can see that when... You, you maybe you listen to something so much that you're like, oh, I need to listen to something different for exactly. Just you probably feel that way too because you're the one doing all the production, inserting these songs, having to listen to them over and over. You probably feel that way too. Like I don't need to hear this person's music again for a while. Oh no, I often end up buying some. Yeah, well, I do that too, actually. <laughs> right on. Um, there have been some guests, some uh, listener requests that I didn't. I didn't come around to, I didn't become that big of a fan of the wooden tops. I knew a few of their songs going in. And so I deep dived them, but I didn't come away being a big fan. And that's true for also for the choir boys. Um, I don't not like it, but it's not stuff that I go back to. And same with Buffalo Tom. I would say those are three bands that I knew some of their stuff going in and I didn't like, I liked it. Okay. But I didn't come away from those interviews, like huge fans or anything. So the some the the wooden top stuff that we included in that episode, I actually liked. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I like this. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with them before, but I like yeah. it. Yeah, I uh, and I, I again I like all these guys fine, <clears throat> but it didn't motivate me to go like buy all their albums and really go deep. But um, and then this question, this is like the golden question: Is there an end game? I think about that every minute of every day, just about. What's your answer to that, Yeah. So I, for me, I find it hard to think that there really is because yeah. as long as, for me, as long as there's a market of people out there that put out good music that don't get the props they deserve, I think we should do that, keep on doing this. Yeah, me too. And, and if I'm honest, the longer we keep on going on, the bigger the pool gets. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't know where this goes, You know, I don't know where it's I think about that sometimes like bands, you know, when they're starting out, they make a demo tape and they send their demo tape to all the labels and they hope to get signed and then they hope to put out a record. But there's no you know, there's no record label for podcasts. There's no demo tape to send anybody. And as I've communicated on here numerous times, finding listeners and making them stick is so difficult, you know. So I don't really know where this goes. I would tell you I have dreams of I wish that we could, I wish we had enough of a fan base that we could put on like a concert, you know. Um, and I've mentioned this on here once before that go to Vegas. My dream would be to have like a stars of 80s movie soundtrack night in Vegas and we get 
Robert Tepper, and we get uh, E.G. Daly, and we get Tim Capello, and Gerard McMahon, and Joe Esposito, and Randy Hall, and Stan Bush, and all these guys put on a show in Vegas one night, and each one of them come out and play their songs that they had in movies that we know. That would be a dream come true to me. Or if, you know, if, there, if we could have some kind of like hustle fest, you know, where like new shoes and <clears throat> the romantics and Walter Egan and the Monroes and whoever else can come out to these shows and, you know, perform for throngs, you know, enough people that cared to make it worth their while. I wish we could do that. Um, oh, but, the Monroes would be a good one. Yes. You know, just to revive some of these people, give them an outlook an outlet you know we got enough of a fan base here with the hustle hustle that care about you that we could we could take it to the next step and put out a put on a concert i wish we could do that i don't know how that would ever be so i don't know i don't know what the end game is other than just keep doing this hopefully keep building an audience hopefully people care um hopefully i think we put out a really good product every week i'm really proud of what we do i don't know how to get it in front of the people who care and that's been my problem this whole time so all right i think this is the last one thoughts on the current crop of rock and roll hall of fame inductees this is also from andy shawl let's see we got bon jovi dire straits nina simone sister rosetta tharp the cars and the moody blues what do you think okay so i'm kind of so so on nina simone but her version of i put a spell on you it's an absolute classic mm-hmm. along with creed creed's Clearwater Revival's cover. But if you want a really interesting listen for that one, go look up the original from 1956, Screaming Jay Hawkins. It's... He was a madman. Different. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but it's so good. But yeah. Nina Simone's cover is probably one of the premier covers. Mm-hmm. Uh, bon Jovi, definitely well-deserved in my opinion. They've they put out so many decent quality albums for pff, forever. Yeah. And I think, like, like I answered, stuck in the notes for you. Bounce is probably one of my mm. favorite. Mm. That's a that's a bold one. That's not one of their more famous or bigger albums, but that's your favorite. It, definitely one of my favorites. That's yeah. great. Good. And then Dire Straits. <sighs> to me. Mark Knopfler's one of the most underrated musicians out there. Mm-hmm. His voice isn't anything. It's almost like he's talking rather than singing most of the time. Mm-hmm. But for his guitar play, he's, for me, he's in the Brian May, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck stratosphere. Mm-hmm. And the, some of the stuff they've done, I mean, you look at that, the cover for, for Brothers in Arms with that, with that uh, amazing Style Zero resonator on, on the front mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. And he's done some awesome soundtracks. I mean, how many were you aware he did yeah. a lot of the oh, yeah. scores for Princess Bride? Local hero, yeah. Yeah. Wag the dog, Wag the good dog. stuff. Yeah, exit to Brooklyn. He's done a lot of the music for stuff like that. Uh, uh, Cal is another one he did. Mm. He's done some amazing soundtrack work. And then the cars. <laughs> Maybe it's just me, but they're forever going to be defined by drive. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And 
if you mention the cars, to me, that's that's probably the first thing, first song people are going to think of if you mention them. Mm. Uh, is that hall worthy? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Moody Blues, definitely a classic, although I'm more partial to just some of Justin Hayward's solo stuff. But, mm, interesting. Uh, and in fact, later on this year, I'm planning to go... He did some, you know, in, in the time away from the Moody Blues, he did some stuff for Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. Hmm. Huh. The music, the musical version. Okay. He did Forever Autumn for that. Huh. And it, it's good. Okay. So I'm going to go see that later on this year. Nice. And then Sister is that How the heck was she not in for now? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There's some really good stuff, and she influenced people like Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash. How is she not in? Yeah, I don't know. Before now. Okay. Well, good. Um, How about you? Yeah, I. Um, this is kind of a weak uh, induction class for me personally. Uh, here's my thoughts. Now, Bon Jovi gets a lot of flack. I am not personally that big of a Bon Jovi fan. I have Slippery When Wet, New Jersey, and their Crossroads Greatest Hits album, and that's really all I need. So do I like them enough to be in the Hall of Fame? No. But my feeling on this is that if you're not going to honor the biggest bands of the decade, no matter the genre, then who else is the Hall of Fame for? That's my thinking on that. Now, Having said that, if they're in, that means Def Leppard deserves to get in there. That means Motley Crue probably deserves to get in there. I mean, you're opening it up to a whole to this whole genre that you that you the Hall of Fame has ignored all along. Not to mention Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, you know, those classic hard rock and heavy metal bands. So, okay. if you're going to put Bon Jovi in there, you have to put Def Leppard in there. It's only fair, and I love Def Leppard. So while I am not a fan of Bon Jovi and they wouldn't be in my personal Hall of Fame, I don't have a problem with them being in there because they're one of the biggest bands ever. And so therefore, of course, they deserve it for that. You know, Dire Straits. I am personally not a Dire Straits fan. I do recognize that Mark is one of the most unmistakable guitarists ever. That doesn't mean that I necessarily like him. Um, They really only have one song that I like. Called, and it's Skate Away. I do enjoy the songs that are on the Brothers in Arms album. To me, they really struck gold once with that album, and then that's kind of it. I don't see a lot of bands out there that are like, I want to be like Dire Straits, you know? I want to, they influenced me to pick up a guitar, or they influenced me to be in a band or whatever. So personally, they are not Hall of Fame worthy to me. I know that a lot of people feel differently. And for musicianship alone, yes, Mark Knopfler is amazing. But um, I don't think they've had the cultural impact and have enough enduring, made enough of an enduring mark on music that merits them being in the Rolling Stone or in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Nina Simone. Nina Simone, my feeling on this, absolutely deserves to be in a Hall of Fame, just not the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's like, to me, that's like putting in Billie Holiday 
or Ella Fitzgerald in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, if you're going to do that, I can understand the thinking because they're pioneers of popular music. And Nina Simone is amazing. That is not anything against Nina Simone. I don't personally feel she deserves or she belongs, not deserves. That's even the wrong word. I don't think she belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Put her in the Jazz Hall of Fame or the singer-songwriter hall of fame or something else not the rock and roll hall of fame that's my personal opinion sister rosetta tharp she now she i mean if we're going to put in all of these legends like lead belly and you know robert johnson and those original originators that started it all then yeah she should be in there do i own any sister rosetta tharp albums no but she's an architect she created it all so of course she should be in there the Moody Blues are the one band on this list that I think, yeah, they belong there. They're classic. Their hits hold up. They were there from the beginning. They've been around forever. Are they, Now, they may have the same problem as Dire Straits. Are there bands out there saying, I want to be like the Moody Blues? Maybe not. But they, they are more than just one song, one hit, one good album. They have a a canon of material that's strong. They're from the early days when they were one of the instigate, one of the first bands to really do it right. And they were innovative, especially when you throw in all the classical angles to their music. I think they're great. I think they belong there. That's just me. Uh, lastly, the cars. I take a lot of heat for this. I like the cars. I don't love them. I don't understand people who love them as deeply as they do. To me, I kind of feel like you. It's not just that they're just drive, but maybe it's because of when we grew up. To me, they're, I don't, their only real impact to me is the Heartbreak City album, which had magic and you don't think. Those to me are not hall, rock and roll Hall of Fame worthy songs. They, are, they didn't change the culture. They were big hits. You know, if we're going just by big pop hits, then yeah. But Richard Marks has a lot of big pop hits. You know, and he's not going to go in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, having said all that, I understand where people are coming from because they are really innovators and architects when it comes to New Wave. And of course, I love New Wave and their first, their early albums, which now I own and I love. Yes, that, that's really great music. But to me, if you're going to put in the cars because of that, then Devo should already be in there. Because what they were doing was more interesting and more innovative, and they were doing it around the same time. And so I'm torn on the cars. To me, they're more of a pop act that have some really good albums. Are they Rock and Roll Hall of Fame material? Maybe not. Probably not. Borderline for me. If they go in, it's on the strength and, of, and the influence of their early New Wave stuff that kind of set the template for New Wave. That sort of post-punk mixed with synthesizers that they did. I have to give it up to them for that, even though they aren't the band that I personally go back to like I do Devo. So that's my thinking on all of that. I'm really annoyed that bands like Depeche Mode didn't get in because, and this is of course coming where, from where I'm coming from, they are like the Rolling Stones of alternative rock to me. They have numerous hits, sold millions of albums, huge. Same with The Cure. These are like the benchmarks of new of new wave and modern music. And Rolling Stone has consistently marginalized that stuff. And so they don't get the credit they deserve. And they absolutely deserve it. It makes no sense to me. And and the same argument could go for the Judas Priest. I mean, Cure and Depeche Mode are like the 
and are like the Iron Maiden and Judas Priest of, of alternative rock. All those bands deserve to get in there. It's stupid that they're not. My solution to all of this is that the Hall of Fame has wings and you have the folk wing and the rap wing and the R&B wing and the alternative wing and the new wave wing and the singer songwriter wing or whatever. And then it opens up to what bands deserve to be in the Hall of Fame under that genre in that wing. That's how you solve this problem to me. Um, our bonus episode. That's you, actually a good idea. Yeah, that's my who, thinking too, because then you can be more inclusive, you know? Who do, we sell, who do we sell that to? No kidding! That's my, okay, yes! Well, get this, our my friend, Jackie, who's going to be our bonus episode next week that worked for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, she disagrees with me on this. She thinks that opens the funnel up too wide. So you're going to hear, a not a debate, but you're going to hear her side of that thinking in uh, the bonus episode next week. So that's my solution to this um hall of fame issue so anyway well see see to me it's called the rock and roll hall of fame mm. rock and roll yes yes well but see then you so nwa nwa now to me more more acutely would be public enemy i think public enemy deserves to be in there because of their impact on music do they deserve to be in the rock and roll hall of fame i don't know it depends on your definition and if you're going to allow rap to be included in the rock and roll hall of fame then you have to allow heavy metal to be in the rock and roll hall of fame you have to allow bands with synthesizers in them to be in the rock and roll hall of fame you can't just say that one genre, because it's got more street cred than the others, deserves to be in, and those other ones don't. That's not fair, you know? So you make you make it open to each genre having its wing. That's my feeling about that. So otherwise, yes, you stick to just rock and roll, and you don't allow the rap and R&B. You don't allow even the earth, wind, and fire, you know, of the world, even though they're one of the greatest bands of all time. Are they rock and roll? I don't know. Maybe not, you know? So that's my solution to all this. Maybe the solution <laughs> maybe the solution is to have a Hall of Fame by genre. That's exact yes, that's it. So I don't know. I don't know what you do, but that's my thinking on all of it. So well that was that was long. I don't know if I hope people care about our recap episodes. I think these are fun, but I don't know. Maybe the appetite out there is not is not out there for us you know, waxing on our old guests and telling stories and answering your questions and stuff like that. I hope that it is. You guys will have to tell us if you if you like these kinds of things. Usually I hear from you guys that you do. That's why we're starting to do more of them. But our goal is to do one of these every couple of months, recap the guests of that of those two months, bring on somebody if that's where we decide to go with all this and um, answer your questions. Anything else you want to add to any of this, Yan? No, I think this this one's been good. There's been a lot more that I've been open to answer, and I think this good, one good. Yeah, I did. I, I did. I did like seeing the photos of you with Steve Kilby, though. That was funny. <laughs> uh, I know he's just sitting there with his arms folded in a big scowl. Let me—that is him. He he has a persona, and he sticks with it. But like I said, I think if you know that, and you don't kowtow to him he warms up a little bit you know he's prickly but he's also a nice guy and he's a funny guy so is he going to ask you how your day is and care no probably not 
but he'll get into it with you. He'll get into the muck and debate bans and what's worthwhile and what isn't. So I like that. Now, also in keeping, I want to, we're going to close out the show with a song by one of our active listeners. This is Anthony Porter, who is the front man for a band called Three Chord Money. And they have an EP on Spotify that's really good, self-titled. And you can buy it on iTunes too, by the way. So this is the first track off that album. It's called Tuesday Night. And we're going to close it out with that. If you have nothing left, I got nothing left either, Yan. I'm good. Okay. We will talk to you guys in another couple of months. Here's Three Chord Money. Sometimes I start drinking To remember why I stopped drinking in the first place Cause tonight I've been thinking And you know it always leaves me in a bad place When everybody looks like a girl I used to know And everywhere ends up another place I shouldn't go And I don't want to spend So no.